Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're presenting our sixth live episode of Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And today we're debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. The Debunked podcast was created by the Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USUM Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. It's also brought to you by the Department of Kinesiology and Health Science and USU Extension. And the program is made possible by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and uh, Community Partners. So as always, we uh, welcome in again Debunked host Don Lyons. Don, great to talk to you again. Hey, Tom. Uh, happy fall to you. Happy fall to you. All right. Well, thanks, Tom, for getting us going today. Yeah, welcome to Debunked. And we have some awesome guests today that are going to share some of their uh, personal stories. And as Tom was talking about Debunked, looking at the demythifying these uh, issues that we're facing through uh, storytelling. So I have the honor um, to pass the mic here to our two wonderful uh, guests, Jay and Laura. Uh, from the Clear Recovery of uh, Catch Valley. Um, And I'm going to start with Jay. Um, Jay, are you here with us? Yes, sir. Hey, Jay, good morning to you, and happy fall to you as well. Um, We're going to start with you. Could you introduce yourself and uh, just give some background of why you're on the bunk today uh, sharing your story? Yeah, so my name's Jay Hymas. I live up in Logan. It's the northeast corner of Utah, Cash Valley, Um, I'm the CEO and owner at Clear Recovery of Cache Valley. Uh, we are an outpatient substance abuse treatment center. Um, we offer MAT and, and a lot of different modalities to help serve uh, many persons in recovery. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm sharing my, per- my story on debunked because I am a personal in, a person in recovery. And uh, it, means, it means a lot to me to be able to be here and, and debunk this myth. Uh, my second chance actually did save my life, and, you know, everyone deserves a second chance. All right. Thanks, Jay. Look forward to you. Thank you for uh, being willing to share your story with everyone here today. Uh, yeah. Let me go with uh, Lauren. Lauren, are you with us today? Yes. I'm here. Hey, good morning. Good morning, and happy good fall morning. to you, too. I'm excited. It's sweater weather for me, so I get to bust out all my sweaters, so <laughs> I love the fall. Uh, but Lauren, I was wondering if you can uh, introduce yourself and um, you know share why you're here today. So my name's Lauren Hymas. Um, I live in High Park, Utah, Cache Valley, and at Clear Recovery, I, I do peer support, yoga, and meditation. And through peer support, I often will work with women coming out of active addiction, trying to help them find recovery just by listening and sharing my personal experience. Um, we see mothers, um, sometimes their children aren't currently in their custody. Sometimes we see pregnancies. And so just by offering that support and listening and sharing and getting vulnerable with them. So. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you both Jay and Lauren for the work that you do. So without further ado, let's let's jump into the conversation a little bit more here, and I'm going to start with Jay. Um, Jay, you know, you explain what you're doing and, and your person in recovery. Um, you know, if you could share how substance uh, use disorder affected your life. Yeah, sure. It, it affected my life in many ways, but the, the biggest way was, was disconnection. Um, I was very disconnected from myself and, and my own my own person, and, and that goes into disconnected from family, disconnected from the community, uh, very, you know, kind of uh, scared, alone. And I felt very, a lot of shame, you know, a lot of shame was, was behind that. So it affected every aspect of my life. I, I was um, textbook homeless for over 10 years and, you know, living in canyons and things like that. So it affected that, that too. It also affected my ability to keep and maintain employment because I, you know, I'd always go back to the drugs, and I kept, I just kept repeating that cycle. I never felt really worthy of, of getting and, and maintaining housing. I completely walked away from my entire family. Um, uh, I think the easiest way to explain it was kind of hidden, right? Hidden from myself, hidden from others, not really wanting to explore that, those true feelings of, of life, 
You know, I just always knew that that was just what I was always going to be. And it was a really horrible feeling. It affected my life in, in many ways, in, in the unthinkable ways. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Yep, I, um, you know, personally for me, growing up in a family of substance abuse, um, you know, I can definitely uh, appreciate your story, and and I'm I'm glad you're where you're at and you're doing what you're doing. So thank you uh, again for jumping on today, and and also the work that you do today, um, Jay. If I could stay with you, when you were uh, seeking treatment, when you got to that point and you're seeking treatment, and and you're start working the plan, what were some of the services that really started helping you to get on your feet or, or maybe it was an individual or, or services or a specific moment in time that really helped you uh, get on your feet? You know, when, uh, you know, Lauren and I got together and, you know, we were exploring, you know, relationship and things like that with each other. It really helped me a ton understanding and seeing someone else who had struggled and had those same feelings. It was kind of a mind blowing situation to me. Uh, but, um, with meeting Lauren's story. And when our worlds collided, it was, it was uh, a miracle, I guess, you know, it was no coincidence. It was kind of what I feel like was meant to happen. And as far as resources, you know, housing and things like that, I, I had a hard time. We had a real hard time getting, um, you know, insurance or any kind of resources to pay for uh, rehab. You know, we immediately pretty quickly started talking about going to rehab and trying to help each other and kind of being that little uh, beacon of light for each other. And, and leaning on each other a little bit, um, but yeah, as far as as far as particular resources like after treatment, I, I we end up getting on insurance and and got treatment and then got out and and the housing and it was hard, it was really hard, uh, you know, getting into a job and and being able to be vulnerable or even wanting to be vulnerable. Still, a lot of those feelings of not good enough and that no one would ever accept me from my past. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Yeah, having a connection and building, uh, you know, because it's it's a lonely, uh, lonely moments for sure. So I'm glad you found each other and and be able to get on your feet. Um, Lauren, I want to I want to turn to you and kind of the same same uh, questions I had for Jay. Um, You know, what was your experience that uh, that you started seeking treatment? Oh. So I was an active addiction for a long time in my life, but I didn't realize I had a problem. I was functioning, working. Um, I was a mom. I was, I had a running household and one day it just wasn't functioning and I wasn't able to get up and go to work anymore. I was always late. Um, I was missing the mark. I wasn't showing up for my kids. I wasn't showing up for work. I wasn't showing up for myself. And I remember sitting there one day and it's like, oh no, like I have a problem. And that was a scary realization. And at that time, I did not know how to get help. Um, I had no resources. I was afraid um, to reach out. Um, So I continued, um, I continued on just trying to maintain on my addiction. I'm I would try to stop on the weekends, but I would crash so hard. Like I couldn't be there for my kids, um, myself, my family, um, again, work. I just could not function period. So, um, I just kept trying to maintain, um, no resources, not knowing how I was going to figure it out. Um, in the process, a DCFS case was opened. Um, I was super lost. I was suicidal. Um, I was just depressed, full of heartache, um, fearful, to be honest, that I had a problem with them, which drove me deeper into my addiction. So um, that was really almost my rock bottom. So right there. Um, And so pretty much my rock bottom was me and Jay, we got together and we got arrested and I had a DCFS case and through that um, my reunification DCFS ended that and I lost custody of my kids that was my rock bottom and at that point like I didn't want to get high anymore but I couldn't figure out how to get clean and so I felt like my only options was like to die or 
because I couldn't figure out how to live a sober life and death wouldn't take me. So that's when we really, me and Jay, we jumped in. I told him in the hospital that last time, I'm like, when I almost OD'd, I was like, I need to go to rehab or I'm going to die. And this is my last chance. So he, we got the resources, um, and we're able to get into inpatient treatment center. And that was sort of like the turning point. You know, Lauren, I want to thank you for sharing your story. You know, your strength uh, and ability to share a story on debunked with us. You know, someone's listening to this and, um, you know, has ability to touch someone and help them that there might be in that moment where you were and I might need to hear these words. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story. When, when you were, um, you know, when you had that moment that I need to get help or this is, this is it. Um, you know, one of the things we want to do on debunked is really look at, um, debunking these things that we're talking about and the lack of resources you touched on that. Um, you know, access to resources or maybe not the access to resources. Could you just share how that could discourage, um, some folks on uh, getting that helping hand? Um, not having resources, um, not having the money or the insurance, um, not knowing. It's really hard for someone in active addiction to reach out and know where to look. Um, it's really scary and fearful. Um, so it can keep them stuck in their addiction for a long time. Like I said, like I had a good year and a half where I knew I needed help, but I just didn't know of any resources, um, and I was fearful to reach out and try to find resources because of the judgment and the stigma and afraid while I still had my kids, I would be judged and I would lose them for seeking help. Like, Oh no, if I admit I have this problem, they're automatically going to take my kids. Um, so I feel like that ties in with the lack of resources too, is just that fear of losing your children, your family, what you do have. Yeah, hundred percent. If you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, and trying to look for support and not knowing where to go or how to go, and and having that um, that um, stigma too. And I and I believe Tom is going to take us with the next couple of questions, and it's a good bridge there. So I'll pass it uh, to Tom. Thanks, Don. Appreciate that. And in fact, we're uh, due for a break here, so let's do that first, and then we'll come back uh, with uh, with the next uh, series of questions. Uh, if you just joined us, uh, you're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we're presenting a live episode of the podcast Debunked. It's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And, uh, of course, Don Lyons, the podcast host, is with us. And uh, we're talking with Jay and Lauren Hymas, owners of Clear Recovery of Cache Valley. We're debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. And uh, we'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. This is Terry Guy for Bringing More to Life. Over 77 million American adults volunteer their time doing work that is worth more than $167 billion every year. The former AmeriCorps CEO Barbara Stewart said, Each and every day, ordinary Americans are stepping up to support their fellow citizens to help with needs, both great and small. Why? Because they understand the power service has to change communities and lives for the better. Our local volunteers are raising funds for nonprofits, tutoring young people, and visiting older adults through programs like RSVP. How can you contribute to our community? Get started today. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cache and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're presenting once again a live episode of Debunked. 
That's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And we're debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. Debunked host Don Lyons is with us, uh, also Jay and Lauren Hymas with us, their owners of Clear Recovery of Cash Valley. Uh, so let me turn next to uh, to, to Jay um, and uh, Jay and Lauren. Uh, thanks for the work you do there, and thanks for sharing your stories here on the on the program today. So Jay, uh, can you describe what kinds of stigmas you faced related to having a substance use disorder, especially in a rural area? Uh, yeah. So you know, there was there was times when I felt you know very ashamed and alone, like I had already mentioned. Um, one a couple times that really stand out to me. Uh, you know, I was staying in a tent up the canyon, you know, just uh, again alone and kind of defeated, had a sense of defeat. And um, I had some hikers, you know, walking by and asked me if I was ever going to move from that camping spot. That moment, like, I immediately packed all my stuff up as much as I could carry and I I was gone. Um, They didn't know that I was living there. um, And, you know, I don't blame them. Maybe they wanted to camp there, but it also it really ingrained that sense of uh, disconnection in my in me, right? Like I didn't belong. I wasn't worthy of even camping somewhere. So I moved as far away from that camp spot as I could, um, and that, you know that was a very horrible feeling. And, and also, I another time I want to mention I was in a in a local gas station, and um, an, an elderly man was in there and he was just, you know, doing his shop and grabbing a couple things. And, and he looked at me and asked me, what's wrong with you? And, and, uh, you know, that really, really struck me too. Like, Oh no. Um, did not, again, didn't feel really comfortable even, even going in the gas stations and things like that for a very long time. You know, I, again, my theme was hidden, right? I felt like that, that was, you know, I was very stigmatized. Um, and sure. I, you know, I may have not been, the picture perfect citizen or whatever, but you know, that stigma and judgment against me for those things was, was really hard. And I also, you know, I also felt a lot of, uh, uh, (laughs) I guess every person in recovery may feel this one, you know, the police, you know, I felt like they were always out to get me and, you know, it was a big, huge stigma against, against me, the world against me, you know, like I could never do anything right in their eyes, which, you know, they're trying to do their job. And today I get to respect those guys because a lot of them have showed up and, and, showing me support today at where I'm at. So thank you to local law enforcement for, for showing up and, and recognizing that, you know, I'm a person in recovery and everyone gets a second chance. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so Jay, uh, I guess a follow-up question. Were there ever times when someone like a neighbor, a pharmacist or doctor, or anyone else was prejudiced toward you or discriminated against you because of your substance use disorder? Um, I, I feel like... Well, a lot. Of, I never really went to a lot of doctors, but when I did go, I felt like they, everyone knew and just kind of treated me like just brushed me aside, like I, I didn't matter. I feel like Laura may be a, a real good answer for that question as far as the doctors and, and how they kind of treated treated her a couple times, and I was there to experience that with her as well. Yeah, uh, Lauren, uh, tell tell me about that. Um, I was. So I was having some issues with my kidneys. Um, I was dehydrated, just not taking care of myself, things that happen in active addiction. We don't necessarily take care of our bodies the best. Um, So I was in the hospital a few times, a few different times. And I remember one of the last times I went in for like my kidneys, like really aching, fever and everything. They had me on an IV and... I remember hearing the nurses, there's two of them, and, like, they were out in the hall talking, well, she's just a drug addict, da-da-da-da-da, like, I could hear them out in the hall, and I'm like, whatever, you know, and they came in when it was time after I got all the fluids in me with my discharge papers, and the nurse, he ripped, he just ripped the IV out of my arm. Um, my whole arm was bruised, like, it was, it was painful. I couldn't believe that they did that, um, <laughs> but I felt like just that treatment was because, like, oh, she's just a drug addict, or she deserves it, or, you know, it's her own problem. She's creating this, um, just how I was treated. It was like they didn't believe me that I was sick. They didn't believe me, like, something was going on inside of me that, like, that was making me feel sick. They just 
you know, I'm just another drug addict in there for whatever reason. So that was sort of my experience with that. That's interesting. The, the, that kind of an attitude, uh, do you, I don't know, over time, do you, do you feel like that, that kind of attitude is less prevalent or, or is it still much out there? Um, so this was years, like over five years ago. Um, I had, so there was for out of the Valley, this is out of cash Valley. I did have completely different experiences in the hospital where they showed me kindness. They gave me resources, um, outside of the hospital. So I feel like it's not quite, there may be the people there. Um, it, I feel like it's just hit or miss where you're at, but like in cash Valley, I feel like we're a smaller area and I, I hope, I hope that, that, that they treat people differently and see it's not just a choice, but it's, you know, that person's sick. So and to treat them as if they're just another human going through a sickness that, and they need help. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so Lauren, uh, uh, anything else you'd like to say, any other experiences uh, regarding, uh, you know, stigmas you've faced regarding having a substance use disorder? Um, that's the main one. Um, is I had, I feel like I had some judgment in early recovery from some of the support groups, um, just because my path looked different. I incorporated yoga and meditation, a lot of mindfulness, holistic healing. And I was told by other people in recovery, as shocking as this sounds, that like my path, like I was told I was going to relapse if I didn't follow this straight and narrow path and do all of these steps exactly as they were laid out in front of me. And that I felt like with stigma, um, it created a lot of fear that, oh no, am I doing it wrong? Am I not going to succeed? Um, I'm grateful I chose the path that I did because that it showed me that everybody's path to recovery can look different. No two people's recovery needs to look the same. And because we're individual, right? We have our own experiences and healing can look like look so different for each individual so yeah certainly uh, certainly true um if you just joined us uh, by the way we're, you're listening to access you time tom williams and uh, we're presenting a live episode of uh, debunked that's uh, the utah podcast which combines evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction substance use disorders and homelessness and we're joined by debunked host Don Lyons, and we're talking with Jay and Lauren Hymas, owners of Clear Recovery of Cash Valley. We're debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. So I want to turn back to you, Jay. Um, talk about uh, housing, of course, very important. Um, uh, tell me some of your experiences finding housing in the past. Uh, yeah, so housing's a obviously necessity, you know, it's a big, huge part of recovery capital. And, and without that, that piece, you know, a lot of people really struggle and the relapse potential is very high. And I've experienced that personally. Um, a lot of the barriers and, and things to getting housing is you go apply for these houses, you know, you go put in an application and you don't get a call. So you go put in another one. And, and of course you don't get a call, you know, a lot of people, you know, especially if you've got an eviction or your credit or score isn't 750 like you don't get the calls back that is defeating um um no knowing that it kind of develops developed sorry personally it developed a sense of of i guess kind of a failure sense right i i just didn't think anyone cared or i thought maybe all right maybe there was people who Maybe it wasn't really for rent. Like, what's going on? Maybe they're just getting my $35 for the application fee every time they can. Like, so I went into a lot of a lot of different places with that. But I think that, you know, understanding that there's not a whole lot of housing out there. Um, as time went on, I kind of did give up on turning in those applications. I was just, whatever. You know, I, I, I got a motor home and I was living in the canyons and, and I was okay with that at, at some point. I was like, whatever, this is just it. Like you won't rent to me. No one will rent to me. This is where I'm going to be. So I, you know, I went through life like that for a long time. Um, not even really wanting to apply for an apartment. Cause I just felt like I was setting myself up for a, a slap in the face or a no kind of a failure feeling again. So I avoided that. Um, and I got into recovery and, and started, started my path to recovery and Lauren and I moved in with, with my mom and 
my sister and her two kids and it was a three bedroom apartment, you know, and so we didn't have a room. We were sleeping kind of on the couch and, you know, in, in my mom's room sometimes and just kind of, you know, it was a really full apartment and that was, that was really hard on us. Uh, again, recovery capital, right? We didn't feel uh, at peace with where we were staying. So, um, on the verge of relapsing a lot, you know, there's a lot of thoughts of relapsing at that point. So I, we went on and we fe- we saw a little house for rent and we, by the grace of God, the, the man just rented it to us. He didn't even ask us any questions. He's just like, whatever. And it was a little small. It was 20 by 20. It was like a little tiny shelter for us. And it was just like a miracle that we got in. So we were able to stay there for some time and then uh, obviously outgrew it. We have children and stuff. We couldn't really, it wasn't manageable. So we, we really desperately needed something. And we were looking and I, we came across a, a place, another sign for an out front and, and uh, called the guy and his name's Mark. And he, he uh, had rented to me before in the past. And I, as soon as I knew it was him, I told Lauren, I was like, there's no way he's going to rent to us. I'm like, there is just no way he will rent this place to us. And she's like, well, why don't we just try? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I still, you know, those feelings were coming up, like another rejection, another failure. I just couldn't, didn't want to stomach that at that point. It's like, no, like, we'll just stay where we're at. And and she she, con- she convinced me into just giving it a try. She, you know, if you never know, if you don't ask, you'll never know. So we, we asked, you know, we applied for the place. And um, having rented from him before and being evicted by him, uh I really felt like we weren't going to get the place, but I was able to to meet with him, you know, as we turned in the application and just, you know, I apologized and I said, look, you know, here it is. I, I'm, I'm a drug addict. I've, I've lived a life of addiction and I know I burned you in the past, but I'm going to do my best to do right by you and, and fulfill the, the lease agreement. Um, I really need this opportunity if you would at least consider it. And he's, he's like, yeah, all right. Just kind of, you know, really nonchalant. Ah, yeah, all right. And uh, we carried about our business, and I told Lauren, there's no way. It's not happening. And and that man called me two days later and brought me to my knees and gave me a second chance. Well, wow, that's that's incredible. Yeah, what, what, a, yeah. what a break. What a wonderful thing. Uh, so, Jay, what, what resources are available? Did you, did you ever find resources? There's there's not a whole lot of resources available for someone who's who's got an eviction or anything like that on their record. There's starting to be more, um, and people are starting to understand the housing market a little bit better, especially in the houses, housing crisis we're in right now. There's very little resources. You know, there's there's Sprag, Bear River Associated Government. They'll help pay your rent, but they ain't going to find you a place. You know, I feel like the biggest barrier is finding a place, finding someone who believes in you, finding someone who will give you that second chance that, you, that everyone deserves. Well, let me let me turn to Lauren. Um, what changes do you think can be made to lessen the challenges that people with substance use disorders uh, face while trying to secure housing? Well, my biggest challenge was my credit. Um, through just the medical bills, everything like that was piled up, and um, so if there was a program. Like I know they have a program for at-risk workers where you get people will employ you and it's like the workforce service will put a deposit down on that person like to, so they can get hired. I'm not quite sure how it works, but if they did something like that with high risk renters, um, that would be amazing because oftentimes those high risk renters can't afford to pay an extra deposit to cover the liability of themselves, you know, or their past or whatever it may be. Um, So I feel like unless, there's resources like that to give the landlord some peace of mind. It's really hard to get into places. So if there's a program like that, I think that would make a huge difference for people seeking those second chances and to be given those second chances and shown like, Hey, like we're fundamentally like all good people and deserving, deserving of good housing, deserving to have a home for a family. So, Lauren, uh, uh, Jay told that uh, an amazing story uh, about this landlord that gave you guys a second chance. Um, what would you say, generally, to landlords about renting homes to people in recovery? Um, give them a second chance. Um, 
definitely just, I feel like by being honest with the landlord, they're more like, and I, I don't know if this is always the case, but I know in our experience, it helped us to get that chance. Um, it's empowering. It feels good when someone gives you that chance and you feel like you're not deserving or worthy of it. So just to have compassionate, um, to be compassionate towards someone and their struggles and their lived experience, because that's not who defines someone. Our experiences, our mistakes don't define us. And to give them the opportunity just to turn a new leaf and start a new chapter can be life-changing for that individual, that person in recovery. Well, this, this next question I want to ask uh, both of you, let me start with Lauren on this, and then, then I'll ask Jay if he has anything to add. Uh, so, Lauren, uh, what do you think local, state, or federal government could do to help improve housing options for people who currently use drugs or people who are now in recovery? Um. Sorry. So um, I think I sort of touched on it before. It's just like maybe coming up with a program that could, for if landlords feel someone's a high-risk person, that could like back them so much. Like I don't know if it would be like an insurance plan or something for, but like the government like help to support these people where they go through an application so they can get into the housing. Because if someone's going through the processes and the steps, to do that, I mean, I just feel like they're trying to create the change they need to, to show they're deserving of a second chance. Uh, Jay, anything to add there? Any any ideas what uh, government can do? Yeah, yeah. So I completely agree with Lauren. You know, I think that affordable and accessible housing is a huge barrier, and it's a huge downfall. It's, and I understand that's not an easy light switch to flip, but, uh, you know, building more and, and charging – uh, maybe subsidizing the, the government could subsidize these housings. You know, low-income housing. You know, getting people off off the streets and out of the cold. You know, that's that's very important. And I feel like it's there's a little bit of a light starting to shine on it. But uh, in the housing market, the crisis we're in right now, like it's it's going to take a long time. You know, so what what do I think that they could do? I think that they could really start hammering out some apartments locally. Um, nationwide probably um and and start building more shelters that are not such a sheltery feeling more of like a individual housing and empowering people to pay a little bit of a rent that's manageable and affordable and helping helping connect them to resources um that's that's a big deal you know affordable housing that you can access that's that's what we need well, it's time for another break. Uh, after the break, uh, uh, the, the podcast host, Don Lyons, will uh, take the next uh, series of questions. Uh, but uh, a reminder that you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm joined by the, a debunked host, Don Lyons. We're hearing a live episode of the podcast Debunked, and we're also talking with Jay and Lauren Hymas, owners of Clear Recovery of Cache Valley. And we're debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. Let's uh, have this break. More following this. Hi, Carrie Bringhurst here, thanking you for your support of Utah Public Radio during our fall member drive. We are now back to our regular programming. We still need your support. We need to reach our final goal of $60,000. We have about $10,000 more we need to raise. It's not too late to pledge your support and go online at upr.org to become a new member or a sustaining member. Thank you so much for all you do to support what we do. The Moth is true stories told live without notes. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on Thursday, October 21st for the Moth main stage. Masks will be required and proof of vaccination or negative test results to enter. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're presenting a live episode of Debunked. That's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And uh, we have with us debunked host Don Lyons, and we're also talking with Jay and Lauren Hymas. They're owners of Clear Recovery of Cache Valley. We're debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. And... Uh, uh, Don Lyons, I think you're going to uh, take the next section. 
Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know what? We've been online, you know, for 15, 20 minutes or so, and just the short, uh, stories, uh, Jay and Lauren, that you shared uh, have been really impactful. And I, again, want to want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, I want to kind of break down a series of questions here, and I'll start with uh, Lauren first. Um, kind of looking at a big picture, we're gonna you're gonna we're gonna you're gonna help us define some of the terms we use here on um, debunk, and then I want to start asking about how you go about doing the work that you do uh, with the people that you help. So, Lauren, let me start with you uh, in harm reduction. When you hear that term, what does it mean for you? So treating each individual's recovery as their own, um, believing in people, honoring their truth and their path, and meeting them where they're at, realizing no two people's recovery isn't the same. There may be someone that needs MAT, um, medication-assisted treatment early on in recovery, while there's people that may not need it at all. So it's just trying to reduce the risk associated with active addiction while they're out on the streets. Thanks, Lauren. Um, Jay, would you want to add anything to that on the harm reduction? What does it mean for you? So harm reduction to me means you know, meeting people where they're at, um, empowering people, um, helping them, meeting them right where they're at, and helping them grow from there. Uh, you know, the old model of breaking people down and building them back up uh, doesn't work. And it, it's, it can be shaming, and that can be really hard. You know, it's, it means connection, you know, integrity, resiliency, all, all of the positives that come out of it. Your story is your story, and we're going to respect that. It, it means loving someone and meeting them where they're at. Yeah, thanks, Jane. I think your story, uh, right before we went to the break, about the landlord and uh, the ability to give uh, another chance. Um, is a is a good example of harm reduction, meeting people where they're at and uh, working with them best they can uh, to give them the opportunity. I want to start sliding into some of your guys' practice when you're working uh, in your current roles. Um, and let me go with Lauren. Uh, Lauren, you know, how how do you – you talked about harm reduction, you know, how we defined it. How do you go about uh, applying that and operationalizing it uh, with the folks that you get to support? So we are very person-centered, which gives the individual seeking treatment a choice of their recovery. Um, again, we meet them with compassion. We believe in them and the path that they choose to take for their recovery, and we're just sort of there supporting them to empower them to make the choices and the decisions they need for themselves and their recovery. Again, going back to no two people's path looks the same. Um, listening to them. Um, I like to get vulnerable with people and share my experience, um, what I've been through, and just listen to them and where they're at. Uh, thanks, Lauren. And Jay, in your role uh, in the work that you do, how do you go about uh, applying uh, harm reduction? So we, we very person-centered, right? All persons served will be respected and given an opportunity to achieve the highest level of stability in, in their individual lives, you know, and, and uh, helping them incorporate recovery capital, making sure they're connected to medical providers, making sure their medical needs are being met. Whether that's MAT or not is is up to them ultimately, and, and that's, you know, we'll definitely need them there where they're at. Um, but yeah, showing them the compassion and, and respect at from the second they walk in the door till the time they leave, um, no matter what their story is. And I think it was uh, Lauren that you you said I have it noted here. You know, healing is a personal journey, and uh, everything it looks a little different for everybody. And having a support and a pathway to get to that is, is really critical. I want Jay, if I could stay with you uh, for a second here, because you started talking about the various services that you do provide in your current role. Um, could you just walk through the listeners and and the and also, like, what when someone comes to you, what are the first steps that you go through, and how do you start wrapping around support uh, to an individual? All right, yeah, sure. So, so first, they'll meet with an individual counselor. Uh, most of the time, it's Lee Williams, our clinical director. Um, they'll meet with him, and he'll go through an assessment with them, and he'll ask a series of questions, personal questions about you know their life and where they're at in life, and how we can meet you know meeting them right where they're at in life. And then from there, he'll, you know, kind of gauge a level of care. We don't want to give them too much or too little. We want to make sure that their their needs are going to be met. 
and then he'll immediately take them to our case management, and, and they'll plug them into what the group times and things like that, all of our programming looks like, um, make sure they're connected to medical providers from there, make sure they're connected to resources, and start gauging their needs. You know, may, you know, someone comes in, they they're they can afford their rent, but yet they don't have food. Then we can make sure they're getting connected to the community uh, food pantry or, you know, uh, food stamps, whatever that may be to help them from there. And then we, uh, from there, you go into group, a lot of group support. Um, we do a lot of community events, we play softball. We, we just make sure that we're training the whole person. Uh, Lauren does a lot of our, our yoga and meditation mindfulness. A lot of our clients really love that. Um, we recently incorporated a, uh, uh, deprivation tanks upstairs. It's magnesium sulfate tanks uh, for clients' overall health and well-being. Um, yeah, and then and making sure they're connected resources. Some people need peer support, you know, to do simple things like fill out applications, like you know, go get out in the community, maybe connect into other resources that uh, we can't do in-house here. Um, and, and yeah, just making sure we're treating the whole person, meeting their needs, and they, their needs change tomorrow. Then I guess we kind of change gears, and treatment planning changes a little bit tomorrow, and. And that's okay. You know, again, very, very person-centered. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And um, it's a very comprehensive approach. And I and I like that you're sharing that you just look at the person-centered. Right? It's the people make up of different circumstances and different things happening, and we have to find ways to support all the different elements that are impacting uh, individuals. Um, I want to stay with you just for a quick second, Jay, because you had you had a good way to frame. Uh, the resources that you that you share, um, you talked about recovery capital, and uh, if you can just elaborate, there might be listeners out there the first time they're hearing that. How would you define uh, that recovery capital? So it's putting things. Recovery capital is putting things in place that uh, for your overall health and well-being, right? Medical insurance, um, doctor visits, regular doctor visits. Um, food, basic needs, a lot of it's basic needs, and a lot of it's incorporating family. You know, family is a huge part of recovery capital. To the family members that may be listening, you know, sh- be kind. Show a little bit of patience for, for those who, who may be going through substance use disorder because it's going to mean the world to them, and it could be very detrimental to their success. They, they, they deserve that respect and a little, little break. Um, recovery capital to me personally means um, – Putting a life together you don't want to escape from, you don't need to escape from. You know, all of those areas of the medical, financial, you know, physical, spiritual, all of the areas, putting those together um, really increases your recovery capital. Quitting smoking cigarettes, you know, I know that's not always people's idea, and a lot of people don't choose to quit smoking cigarettes, and that's okay. You know, that's that's their choice, right, and still loving them even though they're uh, – smoking cigarettes or maybe they're, you know, a lot of people want to explore other drugs and they, they relapse and, and things like that. Well, they can bounce back from that. People are resilient. And, and sometimes we got to, for me personally, my story led to multiple relapses and multiple different drugs and things that I had to try to, you know, figure it out. So yeah, it's putting together a life you don't want to escape from. Yeah. Thanks Jay. Uh, well said. Uh, and before I hand it back here for Tom, we're getting close to uh, the top of the hour here. But uh, uh, Lauren, you know, the work that you do, you talked about a little bit in harm reduction. I explained how you, um, you know, be vulnerable to people and share your story. I wonder if you can just walk through people here um, quickly. If, when you're working with someone, creating that sense of trust is so critical, right? Tom, uh, Jay walked through the idea of wraparound support and understanding the full person. In order to get to that point, people have to trust be able to say, oh, I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling with this. Um, so how do you actually go about uh, cultivating a sense of trust uh, between you and uh, the person that you're working with? By creating a safe space, um, a safe space for them to feel, to acknowledge their feelings, um, to listen, believing in them when they don't believe in themselves. Um, having compassion towards them, having that connection, willing to connect with them. Um, And again, when it's appropriate, just like sharing some of my past experiences and through sharing those experiences, I feel like you often give people hope. hope. So, um, and that creates a good foundation. Um, Connection, connection helps to build trust. 
um, empathy, just all of those softer love, feelings of love, right? Right. Yeah, holding holding hope for people. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, okay, Tom, I think we got some time uh, maybe for a couple more questions, but I know you got the next one ready to go, so uh, pass it to you, Tom. Well, thanks, Don. Um, so let me start with Lauren with this one. Uh, I'll, I'll ask uh, Jay this as well, and I'll ask Don as well uh, this particular question. Uh, so, Lauren, what would you say to people who, who actually believe this myth that we're trying to debunk today, the myth that you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance? What would you say to people who, who maybe say that or believe it? Maybe ask yourself why you feel that way or where it comes from, but everybody deserves a second chance. Um, we're all human. We all have different lived experience. Um, we're all, <clears throat> sorry, we're spiritual beings having a human experience, and that human experience will look different for everybody. So try to see past those mistakes. Don't define someone by those mistakes and just have faith that fundamentally they're good. People are good at their heart, at their core. So just to believe them. Yeah, thank you. Give them a second chance. Uh, so, Jay, what would you say if uh, you encounter someone who is, appears to believe this myth that you shouldn't give people uh, who use drugs a second chance? I just want to start very boldly. That's completely false. Um, everyone deserves a second chance. And I've seen second chances save multiple lives and put multiple people's uh, reunification with their children. I've seen given second chances to people who use substances like help them excel in life. You know, there's a lot of really smart people that, that end up uh, with substance use disorders. They're not any different than the guy next to you. In fact, the guy next to you could be struggling. Don't treat them any different. Um, give them a second chance. Uh, second chances save lives, period. Uh, Don, I'm interested in your uh, uh, perspective on this. What would you say about this? Yeah, and I agree with everything Lauren and Jay were talking about, and it definitely saves lives. I think uh, a lot of it, when giving someone a second chance, you know, we all deserve that. Uh, we're, no one's perfect. And the ability to see humanity in another person is a, is a gift that we can consistently give to each other. And, um, you know, sometimes we, we forget that we're human beings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have to see the humanity. So when I think of that, and I think of my own my own family story, if someone didn't give a uh, second chance to uh, my father, who was struggling through his addiction, that people allowing him to get a second uh, opportunity broke cycles in our family that has been generational in the making. So here I'm having, I have kids now, and, you know, they're never going to see me, uh, you know, struggle with uh, different forms of, uh, of addiction because of people giving him a second chance. So this is generational when we're able to do that uh, for folks and, and break cycles. Well, Don, I know you're going to take the last question here. We have about three minutes uh, left here for this for this uh, part. All right. So rapid fire here, um, Jay and Lauren, we, we got this. Um, so there might be some people listening out here on this live uh, session of Debunked here, and uh, they might be struggling themselves. So I want to ask you to speak to two different audiences as quickly as you can, is for the people who are currently in uh, addiction and might be on the cusp of, yeah, I really need to get help and some encouraging words uh, for them. And, um, Jay, you touched on it. Maybe it's the folks that are not, not struggling with that, but they have family members or people they love. What can they do uh, to support? So I'll go with uh, Lauren first, and, and then if we can, have time with Jay. So to someone currently struggling, um, reach out. Um, be open, because allowing fear to hold you back, it's not going to do you any good. And... When you can be open, you'll realize there's a lot more people willing to help you. So just to reach out um, for that support, for that connection. And then for people, people in society is just believing in that, that to believe in someone that's going through their struggles, um, to have faith in them because oftentimes they don't have that faith or that confidence in themselves till they can start like making small little successes to be patient with them um, just to show them kindness. Thanks, Lauren. Jay, you want to add something? Yeah, sure. So, so as members of society, what, you know, seeking to understand people, what someone may go through, you know, that's, that's the, 
that's huge, right? That could definitely save their life. And rather just judging them or going immediately with your own instincts, maybe ask them questions. Educate yourself about substances and what it does to the brain and how it how it affects the brain. And it kind of kind of takes over your your uh, reward sensors of your brain. And you know, it, there's a lot behind addiction, a lot more than what meets the eye. I urge you all to educate yourselves. And it, and uh, if you are struggling, I want to say, reach out. You know, it, it's hard and it seems impossible, but there's people out there, uh, resources that, that truly care and will show you love and kindness, and you're not alone. Um, you know, second chances definitely save lives, and you're worthy of it. All right. Thanks, Jay. Well, I'm, I'm Jay and Lauren. Thank you for uh, spending time with us. Tom, I think we did it again. I think we uh, got help from folks and uh, debunked some myths out there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, wonderful. We thank everyone. Uh your experiences, uh, Jay and Lauren, especially, uh, have told some great stories here and have helped debunk the myth. You shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. Um, and so we appreciate that. Uh, I should mention here that uh, this concludes the live episodes of Debunked, but uh, you can continue to listening to the future pre-produced episodes on upr.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms that you listen uh, to your podcasts on. So, um, Jay Hymas, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. And Lauren Hymas, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Uh, so Jay and Lauren Hymas are uh, owners of Clear Recovery of Cash Valley. Uh, we've been debunking the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. We've also been uh, joined once again by debunked host Don Lyons. Uh, Don, it's uh, been such a pleasure to co-host with you these live episodes. Yeah, Tom, it's been really great uh, to spend time with you here on uh, Utah Public Radio. I appreciate it. Appreciate it as well. Uh, mentioned that the debunked podcast was created by the Utah State University Office of Health, Equity, and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. Also, the Department of Kinesiology and Health Science and USU Extension. The program is made possible by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and community partners. You've been listening to a live episode of Debunked. It's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And thanks for listening today. Please tune in on Sundays at noon for Utah Public Radio's new show, Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels. The show will air every Sunday right before the Splendid Table, and in each segment, we will explore food and its historical context, along with recipes, personal stories, and interviews about our relationship to food today. Your hosts will be Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, and Tammy Proctor, all from the Department of History at Utah State University. Gender equality isn't just about women. It's about all of us. But while gender equity is good for women and men, Men are often absent from these conversations. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we'll explore male allyship and partnership in gender equality work. Listen in October at utwomen.org. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.